I know most of you. Hi, I'm Karen. (laughs) Jason, you're reading next, right? So, hi, Karen Bell. From where? What's your area? Yeah. What do you study? Oh, that's all. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I, everybody who knows me knows, like, I know everybody in the audience. And <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so I'm Karen Bell, and uh, I am one of uh, the beginning of the two read aloud people. Jason will be following us. Um, there are a couple of you that we don't know. And um, I want to just tell you the context for what it is that we're reading. And we are reading from a piece called Heel Talk. And uh, Heel Talk was a movement theater piece. It was an evening-length movement theater piece uh, that we produced, that we created and produced uh, maybe five or so years ago. And since then, the piece became a video and uh, has been, oh, people show it sort of in their classes in women's studies and theater um, groups. We've done a couple of conferences with it. So now Donna asked us to do the read aloud, so to read a bit from our script. But it was hard for us as we started to rehearse to just read because we're movement theater, dance-type people. So as Vicki and I were trying to just sit still and read, we couldn't quite do that. Um, and so, ma'am, I'm going to ask you to sit uh, oh, okay. over there if you don't mind. This is Vicki Blaine. Vicki is the chair emeritus of the dance department. And uh, I'm currently the dean of the College of the Arts. Um, I was chair of the department after Vicki. We've been working together for about, uh, well, really working together broadly for 27 years and uh, working together specifically on artistic stuff for about 15, a little over 15 So I'm just going to start. You will get the gist of uh, the content very quickly, I think. I'm going to begin. Welcome. I'm manager two, human resource officer, Ph.D., with expertise in gerontology, specifically the aging of women. And my subfield, shoes. You've undoubtedly heard of my groundbreaking work in the area of pharmaceuticals and aging and its political ramifications and theoretical implications as we move into a new millennium, awash with misconception, fear, and panic in the seemingly male-dominated world where women's hormonal issues are finally, finally being explored and are today's buzzwords. You'll excuse me for this. Vaginal dryness. Flaky skin, loss of libido, sagging breasts, sleeplessness, memory loss. Sleeplessness, memory loss. Incontinence, sudden weight gain, and irritability. Other things to know. The first signs of aging show up on the face as smile lines outside the eyes, followed by lines under the eyes. Next, the cheeks get wrinkly and the skin gets drier. Suddenly, the jaw looks a little fuller and soon small fatty pouches appear alongside the corners of the mouth. Of course, this can be taken care of nowadays. An eye job is nothing, a nip here, a tuck there, well, there's nothing to it. And if you have a million-dollar smile, always wear a simple scarf 
nice legs, and of course, the right shoes. You'll stay young looking forever. Speaking of shoes, when I was a little girl, my mom said, Honey, wear my high heels. They'll make your legs look gorgeous. I said, Mom, they hurt. She said, and I'm not kidding, take aspirin (laughs) and smile. However, too much smiling causes the first signs of aging. Shows up on your face as smile lines outside the eyes, followed by lines under the eyes. Next, the cheeks get wrinkly and the skin gets drier. And for God's sakes, I'm telling you, keep down the stress. For it's sure to cause that ghastly gray. That I, oh, bet you thought I'd never get here. Well, working with the likes of her, I never get a word in edgewise, much less have the opportunity to have a meeting together. Better not go down that path. Okay, there's too much work to do. Let me see. Do we have everybody? Ah, sigh. Try to stay the whole meeting, okay? I know you like to leave early. Oh, okay. Donna, enough with the emails. Oh, hey, Charlie. Yeah. Okay, here's the deal. Two women. Sit down. See what I said? Middle age, middle class, middle management. Middle age, 40 to 60. But with today's resources, vitamins, minerals, exercise, liposuction, and Botox, ha, we stretch it to 70. Two women. Again. Who are we? Where were we? And where are we going? You know, doesn't take a rocket scientist. We all know where we're going, right? Aging. Big time aging. Aches and pains and back trouble, sciatica, ruptured disc, osteoarthritis, hip replacement, knee replacement, high cholesterol, stress, hot flashes, incontinence, thinning membranes, thinning bones, thinning skin. And the worst thing, forgetfulness. And we've all been there with children. Been there, done that. But now I hear they are returning home. (laughs) Another place a lot of us have been, Devoris. After 7, 12, 14, 21, 30, whatever. And what about our looks? Oi, grain, sagging, gaining. Two women caught in the middle. Hey, hey, what time is it? Oh my God, there's so much to do. Places to go, people to meet, inventory to take, orders to place, and evaluations to make. Hey, manager two. Manager one. 50-ish, 70-ish, cog in the wheel, middle-level management, personnel, budget, restructuring, downsizing, reconfiguring, downsizing, revamping, reevaluating, reorganizing, retiring. You know, she is a wannabe, a brown-noser, know-it-all, 
a climber. Bully broad. A kiss ass. Castrating female slut. You are white trash. <laughs> you know, my dear, if you're going to advance in this profession, you have to pay more attention to detail. <clears throat> like, oh, uh, look at those shoes. Oh, my God. Please, try pumps. Forget these loud colors and these bare legs. And look at that dress. It's like too tight and too short. You got to watch. It can't be too long and you don't want to deal with side slits. And what about the earrings, my dear? Scale down. Try pearls. And be cautious with the blush. Let me just say one thing to you. You're fat. Oh, my God. I am not fat. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. Maybe you're not that fat. You're not. You're not that fat. Did you ever think you'd get a divorce? Never. I got married in the late 50s, and from the beginning, he was playing around. But you know what? It didn't really bother me, because we were entering a new decade, one that was redefining the meaning of relationships. Well, I got married in the early 70s. It was a time of free love and open marriage. I married my best friend. This went on for 30 years. He stays on his womanizing path, and I become more and more committed to my career. We had a great marriage for 10 years. We were married for 20. One summer, we go to Europe, and he's buying all this shit, and I know none of it is for me. My best friend stopped telling me everything. When we got home, I started to notice that one by one, his shirts started to disappear from the closet. And I figured, do I want to spend the rest of my life like this? I'm calling Jack. My lawyer. Who'd want to divorce us? Yeah. We are so, so great. <laughs> so how is it for you? Great. Getting a divorce at 50 was the best thing that ever happened to me. And you? Painful. And come on, now, seriously, don't you think I still look pretty good? Oh, my dear, you look great for your age. Right. No, oh, you look great for your age, too. No, you look great. You know what? You look great for your age. If I were a little taller... I could carry this weight. Oh, good Lord. You're over 70. Just, you're great. We're great. Five, six, seven, eight, a one, two. We are great. Four. And we're out. And a one, two, done. Hey, I got it. I got back in. Oh. All right. We are great. But did you ever think you'd go through menopause? Oh, never. In the mid-80s, as part of a, a hormone replacement therapy program, I started taking estrogen. 
Soon I became aware of this close correlation between estrogen and cancer. A lot of cancer in my family. I stopped taking estrogen. Well, I go to bed every night with my pajamas on. I wake up in the middle of the night and I am drenched. I swear, my hair is dripping between my thighs are dripping, my underarms are dripping. I get up, I take off all my clothes, stand there stark naked, hop back in bed naked, except for the pink stiletto slippers. Then my gynecologist warns me, without estrogen, I'm at high risk for osteoporosis. And I thought, hmm, I better have a bone density test. Significant bone loss. I get back in bed only to cool off, pull up the sheets, the covers, put on the pajamas, the whole bit happens again. I shifted to Fosamax. Still significant bone loss. This process happens each and every night at least six times. Then I made a big change. I joined a gym. Started strength training, taking calcium, vitamin A, vitamin D, and shifted to Evista. I think I need designer hormones. Who'd ever think we could go through menopause? (laughs) We're so so great. Okay, the aging thing. The rest of it, how is it for you? Well, each day I get up and I face a new challenge. Today, I need to find my spine. I need to find the space between my vertebrae. I need to soften, sense my weight. Before it's too late, I need to learn to breathe through my ankles and knees and hips and elbows and fingers. I need to make myself available to gravity. (laughs) Manager one, I don't even know what you're talking about. What are you doing? Well, let's put it this way. I'm recapturing, reconfiguring, reevaluating, reexamining, refurbishing, reinventing, retooling, restructuring. How about retiring? <laughs> Let's put it this way I'm off to a commune in Palm Springs. All right. <clears throat> now that I'm in charge. It's time to restructure. It's a time to reform, revision, re-examine, rebuild, reinvigorate. It's time to redefine the bottom line. Sagging, wrinkling, thickening, nip it, tuck it, fix it. That's the bottom line. It's time to reassess your footwear. Keep it simple. Wear heels. And remember... I investigate aging and footwear. Hey, I'm back and feeling really pretty good about myself this time around. Mm -hmm. By the way, high heels produce an erect ankle and an extended leg. Who cares if I'm overweight? The arch of the foot is radically curved like a ballet dancer on point. I love wearing these unstructured clothes like these loose-fitting dresses. The entire lower body is thrust into a state of tension resembling that of female sexual arousal. Who cares if my boobs are sagging and my waist has 
disappeared. By tilting the pelvis, high heels caused the lower back to arch and the derriere to protrude. I'm really on the inside the same. High heels place my ass on a pedestal where it belongs. <laughs> These are the shoes for me. Size nine. What do you think? I mean, really, are these shoes disempowering? I mean, come on, do they enslave us? Are we rendered helpless by wearing them? I used to wear a seven, but my feet have really spread. You know, high heels can cripple you for life. Is it worth it? <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, the answer is obvious, of course. At 70-ish, I recommend sneakers. At my age, I'm sticking with the heels. Okay, it's not right, it's not noble, but they're powerful. You go for it, manager two. Uh, I mean, hello, manager one. <laughs> Thanks. Sometimes when we do these performances, well, we take, you know, two or three questions. If anybody has any questions about the process, I think there's time still for Jason. Um, so if anybody has questions, we would be happy, Vicki would be happy to answer them. <laughs> I'll ask myself a question. No, these are not shoes that I normally wear. <laughs> Jason. It was about an hour, and um, th there was more fleshed-out character kinds of stuff. Like, you really got to know my character, um, who was manager, too, and the journey, sort of, that she went through. So what you were reading now, was it an excerpt, or was it sort of a cut-down? Like it, it, it was the middle excerpt, but we sort of um, got some of the content okay. um, in it. Yeah. Hi, Joe. Oh, yeah. We have a fabulous tap dancing. <laughs> this, we thought we'd do one little shim sham. We couldn't even get that out. <laughs> and we did practice. Yeah, it was. <laughs> well, you can tell. We had, I mean, just. Anybody asks us to do anything, and we're happy just so we go to each other's house and rehearse. I mean, that's half the fun of it. So. How did you write it? We've been writing work together since about 19, early 1990s. And um, what we often do is we uh, take our best bits and keep reusing them and reusing them. Poor people in the audience, Janae has probably seen us about 50 times with some of the same material. And we apologize for the tap dance. She helped us with that. <laughs> what are some of your comedic influences? It's really funny. It reminded me of Laurel Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> Who's who? <laughs> Who's your comedic influence, Vic? Probably Woody Allen. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, Woody Allen, like, really divulges a lot. He's very honest. And this was, that, that was where the humor comes in, is how honest. Well, none of this is real. She's really 30 and I'm 20. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Never been divorced and forget menopause. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, when I started writing this, I hadn't been at that stage. And I did a lot of research. <laughs> How does sense changed? I think one of the most... Uh, interesting versions we did. I don't know if you saw it, but the very first rendition of this, there was no text. There was just screaming. (laughs) From the beginning to the end. I mean, we never did it again. (laughs) We had such poor response. (laughs) But I thought it was great and we should... Uh, review it. <laughs> we would ask people, yeah. or we would ask each other in the first piece that we did. Vicky would say, Karen, can you come here and help me? And I'd say, sure. Yeah. And then just, <laughs> and then I would ask her, and we thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah, that'll be our little swan song. Yeah. Back to that. Thank you very much for coming, and I appreciate it. These are the real shoes for today. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sure, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, like Donna said, my name is Jason Gray. Uh, I graduated uh, from Ohio State last June with an MFA in creative writing uh, as a poet. Uh, so I'm a working poet myself, but I also, as a day job, work at the University Press as journals manager. But I went to my undergrad, I went to a place called Alfred University. Anybody heard of it? Wow. Everywhere I go, it's a tiny, tiny place, but everywhere I go, somebody knows it. Um, and ben, uh, ben Howard was the poet there, and he taught the poetry classes. And I owe most of what I know about poetry to him. And he just retired last year after some 30-plus years of teaching at Alfred. And, uh, you know, his work means a lot to me, obviously, so I thought this would be kind of nice to do. Um, so I'm not going to talk too much in between reading, but I will give you a little bit of background and when it's necessary. Um, I'll say that his first three books um, came out in these very beautiful, fine art press books, but also in very limited quantities, so they're hard to find. Um, And then his two later books came out with an Irish press, a trade press, uh, so they're a little more widely available. But his first book is called Father of Waters, printed in 70-something, collects his work from like 68 to 75 or something like that. So here's a couple from there. Noon. Can you hear me, by the way? Very well? Okay. Noon. Early morning shadows deepen ruts and darken scars. They fill the veins of leaves still wet with dew and swell a coffee cup into a club 
menacing saucer and spoon, and follow a duck across wet grass, stretching its bill and tail till they become two grizzled snouts. And these uncomplicated shapes, which catch only the bulk and breadth of what they follow, seldom its feather and quill, one sees the mind's own flat, persistent shadow, trailing behind the things which it desires, distending head and thumb. Yet one looks out in an early morning hour such as this one, watching a sparkling grackle land upon a roof, and one imagines noon, when every object clarifies itself, in sunlight, void of mind and shadow, and is itself alone a thick beak or iridescent wing. This other one I'm going to read for this book is a, I, a, the title of which I just always, ever since I first read it, if I'm out in the woods, I'll, I just hear it all the time. Um, I'm not actually sure what to make of it, but I, I, I can't stop repeating it whenever I'm out in the woods. It's called The Trees If They Had Any Sense, and the title runs into the poem. The trees, if they had any sense, would turn to stones. The oak would turn to granite and the willow to shale. Once again the hail battles the tamarack and wolf cubs crouch in a hole between two boulders. The trees that they knew what was good for them would turn to water. The beach that knows so much would turn to sleet and the cedar to rain. They'd be so much safer that way when the winds from across the valley sweep the ravine and rain that wasn't supposed to last pours down for days. The trees, if they had any intelligence, would turn to clay. The saplings would disintegrate to silt, and the venerable maple would melt to a soft red glaze. This is the second book. It's called Northern Interior. It's from 75 to 82. Just a couple from there. It actually has my favorite of his poems in there, and I'll read that last, though. Floodgates. We had no gift for mourning. What we knew was how to regulate our grievings, how to channel our devils back to hell. At night the barges wailed, the dark issued its warnings. Praise was not our forte. Indignant, yes, at the perfidy of some, and half taken by others' lies, but mostly told by ourselves to keep our angers locked, our fears in common vaults. When water rose to meet us in the streets, it meant nothing that we could say. We filled bags with the river sand. We kept despair eating its wet meal at the cellar door. Cartographies. Unsummoned, uncontainable, the new day enters through a slot in broken blinds. The morning forecast wakens us to a world of crisp or not so crisp divisions, edges, places, and dates as if to say that the night's vivid fluidity was only another wilderness, an island of memory, remorse, and florid imaginings, which someone wiser than ourselves would leave behind. We listen attentively to such advice, but in the space mapped by the weathermen, the mountains carved by sinuous demarcations, we sense another wilderness crossing forbidden lines. We look faithfully at the boundaries of states, the signatures of rivers, and the outlines of the continent we call our own. Yet in the yard outside our window, maple leaves will not hold still, and wayward light riddles the bark with moving branches. 
One of the things that influenced my work from his is his frequent uh, use of nature as an image, a metaphor, uh, you know, a starting point. Uh, and that's something I do quite a bit. And the meditativeness of his poems uh, is something that my own work borrows heavily from. Um, in his third book, he began to write about Ireland, which became, for the rest of his career, kind of his sort of main focal point. He spent a lot of time there. He's written quite a bit on Irish writers and has a great collection of essays on Irish writers, uh, which is worth reading if you're interested in the subject. Um, so you start to see that in his work, and I'm going to read the first two sections of a poem called Monaghan Quartet, uh, which he wrote in memoriam of Patrick Cavanaugh, who was an Irish poet in the 20th century. And actually, I just heard today that the in the ongoing peace process for Northern Ireland, uh, one of the, the, I guess the Protestant version of the IRA, the Ulster Volunteer Army or something like that, has laid down its arms, so... You know, and there's some of that in here about the conflict. So, uh, One, openings. On sodden days, the wind returns in gusts, blasting the rhododendrons. Here in the north, late April's wild recovery advances in the wet fields, bearing along old doubts and fresh misgivings. Out of these morning mists will come a clarity, a second birth, a shining, or so I announce and take my chances against a force that throws its coiled nets over the gorse, the piled stones, the hedgerows. This mist will lift. Those tangled roots and fibers beneath the rocks, those skeins of memory, will be unearthed beneath a northern light that renovates old posts and casts new shadows into the pools and furrows. Out of our fears will come a strength, and out of a lengthening story will rise a hierarchy of worth a plot, an understanding, or so we assure ourselves, seeing the truth and error of our ways in newly parted clouds, in flights of crows performing slow ascents and savage dives. 2. Monaghan This torn country spares itself the frowns of tourists, the foreigners' aspersions. Small, unwatched, the primrose brightens in the ditch, the holly hones its edges. Bound for Fermanagh, visitors might inspect these greystone towns and wind-crowned drumlins once, or not at all. The slope's too gentle, the field's too close to catch the eye. Here are the black hills Cavanaugh renounced, the wayside nettles that snagged his spirit. Stranger to a landscape he found common. I ride uneasily on borrowed roads and meet at pillbox checkpoints on the border, a specter Cavanaugh never saw. The light that falls impartially on Ireland's pain and felicity falls here on barricades, a slot of glass, a corrugated bunker, a civil and detested soldiery. Near to a line where old disunions fester and tribes convene, the severed wing of Ulster shadows its own, who call it bandit country. And this other poem... I'm going to read from this book. is actually written for another professor at Alfred and one of my professors as well. And, and I don't know anything in the bio- biography behind it, um, but I just, because it's about a professor I know, I guess I like it. Um, no parking for Paul Strong. When I watched his daughter turn from her father, taking his tight smile with her as she went, 
I heard among the slams of car doors something low and feral. Loss is the animal that never sleeps. The predator that stalks families and clans, curling in empty beds and vacant dens, habitué of funerals. It never mourns and is a fatal accident in all things terminal, the sole survivor. Or, as here, the shadow huddling beneath the glare of polished fenders, breathing the gray exhaust of idling engines, the heat of wheels in motion. He, um, his interest in Ireland sort of made him, well, he, as he spent a lot of time there, he began to work on what he called a verse novella, uh, a book called Mid-Century, which is a story of an lexic- American lexicographer uh, in Ireland in, during World War II and just after, from 1944 to 1950. Um, and it's kind of an internal monologue, basically, of this lexicographer. And it goes through, in this book, six sections, and he appends it in his last book with another section. Um, And I'm just going to read the opening couple sections. Well, the opening section, and it's divided, subdivided into sort of first parts. But this first section is called The Word from Dublin, 1944. And it moves from Dublin to other parts of Ireland and back to Dublin, back and forth. Um, An interesting story, anyways. One, I can't begin to say what brought me here unless it be the Irish predilections for whiskey and horses, both of which entail a certain risk and a less than certain gain. To be a middle-aged American in Dublin in the middle of a war of which we're hearing more or less than nothing, and that in fragments, bits of veracity, a mutilated bulletin, a headline, is to see one's lot reflected in the stories that come to us distorted if at all. Stories of heroism, sacrifice, or more often, utter devastation. Of Irish horses, I know next to nothing. Of Irish whiskey, I can claim the knowledge given to those who can't pretend to know the subtle processes of distillation by which a grain becomes a thing of beauty and a force majeure in decimated lives, but know too well the amber Irish jewel that shoots its radiance through heart and soul and soothes the brain it hastens to dismantle. Water of life indeed, its irrigation useful to a spirit somewhat parched by human frailties and human needs, or more specifically, the final exit of her whom I was pleased to call my wife, until I called it quits and left those scenes of mutual defeat and exploitation. And she in concert left for Colorado, taking her parents and her only child, and our only child, excuse me, Or, more recently, my troubled lover, savagely beautiful but off her rocker, who also bolted, taking neither child nor furniture but much of my belief in sanctity and high romantic logic. Reasons enough to sojourn in a country notorious for its hospitality, itself no stranger to intestine wars, but neutral where the lunacies of Hitler and the blusterings of Churchill are concerned and to find some consolation in a landscape which in the evening sometimes calls to mind the saintly scholar's tranquil countenance, or if you like, the monks at Clonmacnoise transcribing psalms and jotting marginalia, marginalia, excuse me, in perfect peace before the Danes' arrival. Two. The heart has many corners, but this city is, I think, a diagram of corners, 
not least the pungent snugs of the palace bar, those corners where the heart can talk itself out of its misery or celebrate its minor triumphs over a ball of malt. The last is Irish for a shot of whiskey, a phrase I fancy only a little less than the thing itself, mainly because it captures the truth about the permanence of things, for what the trick of speech is calling solid is really liquid, not precisely formless, but certainly susceptible to change, by which I mean consumption, disappearance. On that one point, if nowhere else, the Irish remind me of those smiling Buddhist monks who make impermanence their daily meditation, along with suffering, the formless ego, and the spectacle of loved one's flesh decaying. For death, as the poet said, is never far from the Irish mind, or ever very far from the darker corners of the palace bar. For sometimes in the evenings I allow my thought to circulate around my father, that stout Midwestern Methodist, whose leading scruple was a stern sobriety in talk as well as drink. Weigh your words, he told me. Sound advice, if seldom taken and seldom needed, now that certain words carry more weight than anyone can manage. What's eating them, I asked my sober sister, noticing off to the side two upright farmers standing at attention like those gothic oldsters in the paintings. Don't you know, my sister said, they have moralysis. That was a dream some thirty years ago. I didn't know. How could I, having grown almost to manhood, with that same affliction which causes Iowans to see the world as more coherent than it really is, and gamely to construct a moral dream where black is black and a promise is a promise? In the nether corners of the palace bar, where black is seldom black, or a fact, a fact, my father's dream can seem a kind of madness. And just to keep my bearings in this country, whose ancient language has no words for yes or no, but only subtle shades of meaning, I sometimes scratch the facts on sodden napkins. I'm 48. My son is nine. Tonight is June 22nd, 1944. And this is his latest book, Dark Pool. And he has another one coming out, he just told me, I guess, next summer, hopefully, from the same press, called Leaf Sunlight Asphalt, I guess, at least as of now. One of the things that I did learn from him that I admire so much in his work is choosing the right word, and so much of poetry is about that, since you have limited space and you have to use the right word. And this is a poem that sort of exemplifies that for me, um, at least in my own mind. Um, and it's a poem about writing poetry. The Growing Poem. We cut it back, the lavish forsythia, whose branches had grown thick and interlocked, their high arcs intertwined with untrained limbs, blocking light and hampering the view. How dwarfed it looks, its green insignia, returning week by week, its trunk wood hacked to knee-high stubs from which resurgent stems extend themselves, bearing a leaf or two. I think of it this morning, reading lines and cadences that will in time be chopped to half their length or cut out altogether, the open space and aperture for light and for such meanings as reside in zones not clogged with word or matter, managed, cropped, and vulnerable to every sort of weather. 
the growing poem seeks its perfect height, as though its syllables were born of soil and circumstance, its predicates of water, its eloquence of rain and wintry air, replete with light and redolent of toil. This is a sonnet called Reticence. What is it but an envelope devised to shelter those invisible desires, those petty bigotries and rancid fears, which would, if not protected, be exposed for what they are? What is it but a bolt which keeps the stores of memory secure, lest your house be looted by that burglar who knows your slightest move, your subtlest habit, your grossest fault? But what your barriers have held at bay is not that predator alone, nor yet the tireless voyeurs, but that constrained intruder in your heart, whose business is to see you as you are, however much you keep yourself apart. All right, I'm just going to read one more here. Um, I said earlier, this is my favorite. It's a, a poem as a, a letter, um, or a letter that's written as a poem. And it's written to, let me have a little of this, uh, to a naturalist named Lauren Isley. Is anybody familiar with him? Um, it's a, a writer, a naturalist. So he wrote a lot of, number of very good books um, back in the middle, latter half of the century. Um, but he, must, he knew him a little bit, I guess. Um, but this is a poem that he wrote as a letter to, to Lauren Isley. It's called Two Deer. Again, Lauren, the middle of August finds me aghast with how little I've done. The swallows fledged in their muddy nest above the yard lamp over a month ago and flew away. At least they accomplished something. I can claim no similar achievement. Even the hay fared better than I. It grew. Drenched in three weeks' rain and finally was cut. I know, like me, you felt that vague, illicit desire to be less than human, perhaps to be a fox or one of those steers in our pasture, nosing a fence post, chewing a handful of grass, achieving nothing. Accomplishment, I fear, is a human invention designed to keep the likes of you and me in a state of anxiety or joy. Where did we find our need to build edifices of words to prove our worth, as if such structures were a stay against confusion, yes, but also against oblivion, waste, and ruin. You have known all three and more. I think of you thumping the floor to signal to your mother, your mother deaf and dumb, or running away from the woman she'd become, a mad, wild fury chasing her son across a cornfield. You say you cannot recall whether you laughed at her. But did you see yourself as her in 30 years? a grown man fronting the taunting faces? Perhaps achievement is a house, a sturdy house, immune to ridicule. It seems that I've been building such a house for years as though I had no other aim than to avoid becoming one whom insolent sons might jeer and shake a stick at. Nobler purposes we have, I'm sure. But August is disintegrating, and tonight I feel inclined to let it go. It was only yesterday I lay in the hammock, watching the light go out of the hawthorns on the hill. I heard behind me a little noise, 
And then I saw the deer, young, quick ears, dark eyes, not twenty feet away. I wish you had seen them, Lauren. But if words are good for anything, they are right for re-articulating what the world has put together, bone by bone. I write to tell you that I saw two deer. For a moment, they and I were still. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you.